The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Here in the United States, the holiday season is rolling around. And typically at this time of year, basically post-Halloween, And into November and December, we try to link up our topics and our subject matters to holiday-related issues, uh, generally on the lighter side, but nevertheless items of interest to both archaeologists and the general public. And as we have been moving in the past two, three years, we are trying to expand our listening audience to the general public. So we're going to insert a little bit of lightness to it, even though the topics themselves are very professional and very, very, uh, very, very detailed in many ways. Um, One of the specialties that we have discussed on several other occasions is faunal analysis in archaeology, which simply uh, refers to the utilization and interpretation of animal and animal bone collections to uh, reconstruct previous environments and previous lifeways associated with uh, various uh, populations and and uh, prehistoric and historic in uh, in the world and uh, to see how diets change to see how hunting practices change and to see how environments themselves have been transformed time. Today's specialty and today's topic will be the turkey because Thanksgiving is coming up very shortly and I am delighted to discuss this topic with a faunal specialist, Dr. Tyr Fothergill, who is a research fellow at the School of Archaeology and Ancient History at the University of Leicester in the UK. Uh, Dr. Fothergill has a unique background because she has three degrees, all of which were obtained in different countries. Her BA is in anthropology from the University of Colorado Boulder, and she holds a master's in archaeology from Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada, and her PhD from the University of Leicester in the UK. Uh, Dr. Fothersgill's research concentrates on animal bone size and morphology with studies of disease and injury to attempt to reconstruct relationships between humans and other animals in the past. So along the lines of faunal analysis, contemporary animal bone analysis, and her research has taken her to the American Southwest, the UK, uh, Jordan, and Libya, and a variety of time frames, generally later periods post-Neolithic, and uh, she is presently in the process of collating, analyzing, and interpreting evidence of chicken husbandry at sites in Europe and North Africa. And so she seems like a wonderful candidate to discuss the turkey, among other things, and we will do that. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Tier Fothergill. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So let's begin with your background. I mean, it's a very interesting background. How did you get in, interested in faunal analysis uh, to begin with, and how does has your ke- career um, developed from that? Well, um, 
it's it's quite it, it's a little bit ironic that I'm talking about turkeys in this respect because turkeys were really crucial in driving me toward faunal analysis um, and you know studying human and animal relationships and animal husbandry in the past. Um, I changed to uh, anthropology, sort of the physical end of the discipline, from engineering. Um, Wow. So, yeah, uh, I started out uh, studying astrophysics and planetary sciences, uh, and they had a, uh, a program uh, to put people in that career path into the humanities um, because, well, there's all kinds of jokes you can make about that. But uh, I, that is where I encountered archaeology. And from the very start, um, it was paleopathology that, that caught my attention. Um, I still remember sitting in this, you know, filled lecture theatre, listening to I think it was Douglas Banforth talking about mm-hmm. um, lesions present in, in both humans and, and dogs at a particular archaeological site, and I thought people do this? People <laughs> do this? <laughs> I want to do they this. They do, yeah, right. Yes. So uh, that that uh, that shifted my focus quite a lot. I I change, um, and uh, the um, the you know the course that I ended up taking uh, set me toward taking my field school course um, at the Bluff Great House, uh, which is in southeast Utah. It's a Chacoan outlier, and I undertook that work and training under Kathy Cameron and uh, Steve Luxon, who are at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Um, so it was the very end of my undergraduate uh, that I finally did field work. Um, I remember being very concerned because they tell you, you know, you might not like it, uh, but it was it was fantastic uh, and you know, uh, animal bones coming out of the trenches. Uh, nothing, nothing has ever been quite so exciting. Uh, so that really, uh, from the very beginning, pathologies and, and turkeys, um, I, uh, there wasn't anywhere really to look at um, animal paleopathology um, sort of in the American Southwest. Uh, and so I... I um, went up to uh, British Columbia, which I have a family there anyway, uh, and I looked at um, I looked at turkey bones from the Bluff Great House um, as well as the rest of the assemblage uh, during my master's uh, research with John Driver. So you did your research on, uh, I assume, a very nice collection at Chaco Canyon. For those of, of you out there who aren't familiar, this is one of the m- most significant sites in later prehistory in North America. And uh, I assume that this was a wonderful segue for you to actually get your hands dirty, if you will, in doing this type of analysis. It was ideal. Um, I did end up actually analyzing the bluff bones uh, in Canada, but um, I, I had the chance later on when I did my PhD data collection to work on material um, from Chaco Canyon. Um, bluff is an outlier, so it's, it's quite far away from you know, Chaco Canyon proper, uh, but it's part of the same phenomena. Uh, and, and the bones from there are delightfully preserved they are just in fantastic shape uh, and their idea the aridity out yes there. yes and so, i guess one of the questions that i would have because this is fascinating and i'm sure a lot of people want to hear about this sort of as an introduction to to your more broader topics here mm. um what is, what about the fact that it is an outlier meaning that it's peripheral Sort of to the uh, to the Chaco Heartland, and so I assume you were also looking at artifacts as well as uh, animal assemblages that may have been locally introduced as well that might have diverged a little bit from Chaco. Yes, uh, the the Bluff assemblage is very different from the only uh, the only Chaco assemblage I was able to access uh, because access sort of drove the direction of the PhD research, really. I had a limited amount of a sort of time and, and resources 
for access. The one that I was able to access was the 11th hour. And that's a remarkable assemblage. It's, it's very different in terms of the proportions of male to female turkeys, in terms of the sorts of, uh, preservation that, that you see, uh, and also, uh, you know, the proportion of juveniles. So demographically, um, I say, I suppose, or pooleographically, um, right. it's quite, uh, it's very different from Bluff. Also, Bluff had much higher fragmentation. Um, of the remains, so it, it's they're very different sites uh, and very different assemblages, um, but they overlapped in time somewhat. And uh, you had obviously a, a, a very interesting collection there. And I guess what's what's of some interest is how did you get into the pathology question? Right. Um, well, the first pathologies I encountered were actually in a trench and this is a sort of kind of one in a million chance I found two different instances of what looked like almost identical lesions in turkey ulni uh, which is a wing bone it's one of the it's the wing bone to which the secondary feathers attach um I found two instances of a lesion that looked identical and in the very same element in the same trench you know same context and I thought what is going on here? Mm. Uh, it, it just, I got, I, w- I was hooked. That was, that was it. I thought I'm going to, I'm going to have to chase this. Uh, so I chased the bluff assemblage and then I contextualize it later with nine other assemblages. Um, wow. Yeah. So uh, what was the common denominator with these lesions? Right. Well, that, those particular lesions, I, uh, <laughs> it sounds really terrible, but in the, in the face of, of, lots of different types of pathologies that I sort of encountered and attempted differential diagnosis on, you know, described and photographed, I, I sort of ended up not quite leaving them behind. Uh, but, you know, you get into the nitty gritty of data analysis uh, and you, you can't see the, the forest for the trees sure. in a way. Uh, and I, I only got back to looking at those particular lesions quite recently um, and the, what, I, what I found um, is uh, sort of investigating these traumatic lesions to the, the wing bones, the ulna, and taking a really diagnostic approach to examining and eliminating various potential causes, whilst also incorporating other lines of evidence like ethnography and historical resources, and linking those injuries to past feather harvesting practices. Um, we've known for a long time uh, that feathers were very important to the peoples of the American Southwest. I think it was Natalie Monroe who finally came out and stated, well, feather production could have been the primary motivation for turkey domestication rather than say meat um but she wasn't the first to highlight how important they were um anyway i've i've just submitted uh, an article on these lesions um but quite probably um those from bluff and and several other sites in the american southwest i think four other sites uh could be linked to feather harvesting practices i see so, uh, and I want to get into that one in some detail because uh, I want to discuss the entire question of domestication after the break. But this sort of set you on a track for uh, looking at pathology questions generally as part of your specialization? Yes, it, it absolutely did. Uh, it ended up being that I needed to, well, translocate <laughs> to the UK uh, to find specialists in animal paleopathology for my PhD to, so that I could get trained up and really learn to use some established paleopathological recording protocols so that a, you know, a, a good um, sort of diagnostic series of, of uh, you know, well, a proper diagnosis could be attempted and really right. looking at the potential causes, eliminating other things, being quite methodic and, and thorough about it. But that shaped the rest of my research sort of strategies to be quite honest and we will be back with our interview with dr tier father gill after these words please stay tuned we'll be right back become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america 
Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hospitality News Network for a look inside the travel, hotel, restaurant, and hospitality industry. Host Stephen Nicole and his guests will teach you everything you've wanted to know about this fascinating industry. Who knows? You might just want to change your own career path. At the very least, you might end up being a preferred customer. The Hospitality News Network is broadcast live every Monday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your best legal defense is the show that's here to answer your legal questions. Hosted by Lonnie McDowell, one of the top 100 California criminal defense trial attorneys, our program will answer your questions about the criminal justice system, even if you need to be anonymous. Lonnie demonstrates a firm understanding of the legal system, and his guests have experience in a number of facets of the law. Be prepared. Tune in. Your best legal defense airs Saturdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology. My guest today is Dr. Tier Fothergill, who is a research fellow at the School of Archaeology and Ancient History at the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom. We've been talking about her career as a faunal analysis, an analyst with a special focus on uh, turkeys because of the Thanksgiving holiday that is upcoming. And uh, I guess uh, one of one of the topics that I'm really interested in, and I think most of the audience is, is the entire question of domestication of the turkey. And you had touched on it by claiming uh, something that I didn't know very much about, and I assume a lot of other people in the listening audience don't know a whole lot about, is the fact that one of the major sources for domestications or one of the major causes of of domestication may have been an interest in the feathers rather than any other aspect of the turkey. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on domestication, what we know about it chronologically and processually, and also give us a little bit of information on how the feather idea got into all of this. Sure. Um, Well, my work sort of, I suppose, dovetails, to use a nice avian word, um, <laughs> with, with a lot of other work on turkey domestication because we both, um, the size and shape thing is very important in paleopathological work, as you might imagine, um, because some pathologies are, are really only defined by shape change to the bone. Of course. And uh, turkey domestication uh, started out very, well, People have thought about it for a long time in the American Southwest, especially because you have, um, you know, the people who are turning up um, initially after the Spanish, of course, you have Gustav Nordenskjold, a 19th century Swedish explorer of Finnish extraction, uh, the Wetherills of the Mesa Verde area, and even mm-hmm. the Spanish turning up and, and looking at these these ruins and, and sometimes the bones themselves and saying, oh, well, these must, must be ancient domestic flocks uh so it's quite um uh, somewhat problematically though uh 
once once people start getting into it um, from a less antiquarian perspective, I suppose I could say, uh, there's there are experts who are still claiming as late as probably the early 2000s that the mm-hmm. turkey was never domesticated in the new world and this is sort of an, an echo of colonialist perspectives uh, rather that Europeans were the ones who were actually responsible for the turkey being domesticated um, I mean and obviously we know that's, that's not right uh, ancient DNA work by people like Camilla Speller and her colleagues certainly supports the view that it was domesticated in the new world um, though there were probably multiple centres of domestication and it's quite likely that the turkey moved around Mexico and the American Southwest by people in the past and reconstructing those relationships and how domestication worked in that context would be quite challenging indeed um, well, I one think- of the theories that I've heard before uh, is that the test uh, that the uh, turkey is in fact indigenous to the New World, and that somewhere along the line, uh, pop- smaller populations of of turkeys were taken back into Europe, and they were domesticated there. So is that an idea that still holds water, or is that uh, definitively disproved? Because you've got it going both ways. How exactly would you figure out where and when the process started? Right. Uh, Well, you're you're absolutely right that it's a process. Um, We have this sort of investigations of domestication are are so vital to our understanding uh, of that very long history of interactions between humans and and other animals. Examinations of the process of initial or incipient domestication for various species and the search for the oldest domestic species X can completely take for granted that in fact domestication, um, I think to sort of take the words of I think Diane Gifford-Gonzalez and Olivier Hanot, is a long-term co-evolutionary process Um, and you you can't just flip a switch and the species is domestic. It's Mm -hmm. not a binary division at all and and i suppose the old way of looking at it is that it's a dichotomy there's wild and there's domestic it's not quite as straightforward as that which makes studying it quite complicated um so in a way it, it has to be we have to allow for a spectrum in which the turkey of the american southwest is um it's domestic the european turkey once you know, once it turns up in 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 Europe, um, it's it's a domesticate, and then it comes back to North America. You have uh, the uh, development of the broad-breasted white um, and these other turkey breeds uh, later on. So, tell us a little bit about how how well we understand the. Of a the domestication process, and you've started to hit on that. And secondly, how? What about the movements of the turkey once they are in the new world, and how they were variably utilized through time and by different areas and populations? Right. Um, this is one of the reasons that I, I, I really wanted to look at turkeys uh, because uh, (laughs) not only, you know, are they so well preserved in the American Southwest and there's all these other really excellent points for looking at them. um, There's, um, it's, it's difficult to look at these different uses, uses of the turkey in the past, looking at only skeletal attributes because some of the things that people would perceive as desirable in some way might not be related to bone shape or have an impact on bone which is directly correlated to that shape Um, so I guess one example to kind of step away from our lovely turkeys for just a brief moment we know from written records that people in ancient Ireland valued cattle of a certain colour more than others so just to take a single example Surely that is a trait that people might have attempted to reproduce. Of course. Um, and that, that would have very little relationship to how productive the animal is with regard to milking or meat weight or quick maturation. And I'm sure in the past, different people in different regions of the New World viewed the turkey in completely different ways um, and, and probably, uh, you know, directed their husbandry attempts in, in directions which we can't necessarily, very sadly, reconstruct fully. Well, yeah, that's true. And I think that if you're looking at this entire domestication question, and again, like you say, it's so difficult to reconstruct, but a logical way to do it would be to observe, if one could, the traditional 
the traditional characteristics that one wanted to select for identify the environmental mm -hmm. situations in which those were more frequently distributed and then essentially try to mimic those circumstances for domestication processes. And I assume that you domestication types, <laughs> I don't want to call you well. kind of people, but you look at these sorts of things that way because a lot of it would just be statistical measures for variability and isolating oh, yes. the conditions that do it. Right. Well, what, what I did find... Um, in, in my PhD was that there was, you know, you're talking about less variability statistically. And that's, yes. that was, that was something that I did find. I, to, um, to be quite honest, I would love to have a lot more data than, than, than I do on the, on the turkeys. And, and really something that I think could help us, uh, would be looking at three dimensional geometric morphometrics because that would let us get into biomechanics, which we could then tie into more, um, as you call it, sort of environmental things, which, you know, obviously humans and, and husbandry have something to do with it, but also ecology and other factors. Clearly. Um, but with, just what I have, I did find less variation in the measurements of turkey bones over time, which, you know, correlates with this directed breeding. Right. Um, so it's, I mean, there are, there are other tantalizing trends that I, I, I really hesitate to, to sort of highlight without more data. Um, and unfortunately, measuring turkey bones is not really frequently undertaken. There was, a, I think, a publication in 2012 by Shaw Badenhorst and some other colleagues that called attention to the exact utility of these things. And uh, I, w I would love to see that become standard practice. It will, I think it will really help us understand, as you say, questions of domestication and, and this ongoing process of, of, you know, humans and animals relating to each other, but also humans shaping animals, animals shaping the human experience in return and this sort of cycle. Um, well, it's a feedback loop, really. It is. It absolutely is. Um, the way that, we're, and this happens later on, and it's very clear from historical records, um, especially if you, if you look at the, the European records, uh, which I, I had too for my PhD, um, the way that people perceive the turkey directly drives the way in which they breed it. And then the turkey sort of goes in that direction and it starts, um, it's viewed as a meat product. So it's sort of husbanded in that way. And then it starts developing diseases that you see in, in, in uh, avians that are husbanded directly for meat, um, fast growing breeds of poultry, um, in essence. Well, you have, and, and this is, again, along the technical lines, and I just want to uh, carry this one out a little bit. Obviously, you're looking at avian populations of a variety of different types. Mm. And I assume that the methods generally that you use for one type would be, with some modification, transferable to another. It's true. I think that's definitely true to a certain extent with gallinaceous species. So, I guess round shapes, yeah, there delicious you go. birds that live on the ground, right? Right, yeah. Um, that, that have a, a locomotory strategy that relies almost in, entirely, but not in, completely, on, on their hind legs. They prefer to run rather than fly. Um, so chickens, uh, guinea fowl, um, they get around in the same way. And so methods that you use to measure and record, um, this Cohen and Sargentson, which is standard kind of avian metrical analysis um, that, that you might use for that. Um, though you would, you have to be quite careful to extend it to all birds, as long as you take into account sort of the evolu evolutionary history of that species and, and how it behaves, you know, how it lives its life, um, sort of as a species, not as an individual necessarily. Of course, yeah. Um, then then you can definitely make modifications and, and sort of shift it around, I, I would think. Um, yes. Okay. We will be back with this very fascinating discussion with my special guest, Dr. Tyr Fothergill of the School of Archaeology and Ancient History at the University of Leicester. And uh, just stay tuned. We'll be back after these words. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? 
What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Most successful people have a strategy for their personal and professional advancement. They understand the value of learning from other people who know how to reach their goals and enjoy their lives. You can live life on your terms at home, work, play, and in the community. Join Lori and industry leaders as they share practical insights with you. Only on In It Together with Lori Lynn Green. Mondays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Joe Sheldon Ryan, and we're back with uh, our third segment on a very interesting program that sort of commemorates the turkey and its role in uh, in the upcoming um, Thanksgiving holiday. And uh, yeah, uh, my guest is Dr. Tier Fothergill, a, a research fellow at the School of Archaeology at the University of Leicester. And we were talking about domestication and got into some questions as to how contr- how controls from both human populations, ecological circumstances, how those factor into um, our understanding of the entire domestication process. Um, Why don't you talk a little bit about uh, the turkey and its relationship to the Spanish arrival and uh, how that that complex interaction between turkeys possibly going back and forth to Europe and that sort of thing, um, how how that works. And the other thing I think that is interesting to talk about in this regard is I think most people, lay people certainly in the United States and North America, sort of look at the turkey as being exclusively a northeastern phenomenon tied into our traditional interpretations of uh, the pilgrims and uh, right. the turkeys that were essentially used for those first Thanksgiving dinners way mm. back in the uh, 17th and early 18th century. So why don't you give us a little bit of background and your perspective on that? Right. Well, it's quite possible that the first European to see the turkey in all of its splendor um, was uh, Columbus um, in probably 1518 at Cabo de Honduras, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he encounters this bird that uh, Spanish sources describe as, you know, uh, gallinas de la tierra, right? Like um, birds of the earth, basically. And mm-hmm. they are described as better than any comparable fowl found in Spain. Um, so better. better. Oh, they love the turkey. The Spanish were incredibly impressed by the species. But better in terms of what? Food? Well, oh, well, yes. Because so we talked a little bit earlier about perceptions and how the First Nations across uh, the native people across the American Southwest probably have different perceptions of the bird and had different uses and there's all these restraints on the process of domestication and things but the spanish when the spanish turn up and they see the turkey well they 
encountered two subspecies of the turkey, um, Meliagris galapavo and Meliagris oscillata, um, the latter of which is generally argued to not have been domesticated. Um, When they encounter the turkey, uh, they were incredibly impressed and they say uh, the flesh of these birds is very good and incomparably better and more tender than that of the peafowls in Spain. They view the bird as, as meat. They see that thing and they think that, that is supper. Um, mm. And that, uh, what I just read out is um, in the Historia General y Natural de las Indias um, by Oviedo y Valdez, um, eventually published in 1851, but referring to earlier periods. Um, basically, the um, the tur- they link the turkey with the peacock in in that quote, and that's not really a coincidence because uh, you know the turkey has this tail this tail fanning behaviour, uh, right? Um, this display that the male especially in- engages in um, you know in the wild and and in domestic contexts as well. Um, it's not really shocking that turkeys are more delicious than peacocks. I have to say I've not eaten a peacock. No, um, I haven't either. Oh, gosh. By all historical accounts, I think it was Isidore of Seville wrote that they were absolutely disgusting. Um, what, peacocks? Yes. Uh, okay. people would People would eat them as a display of piety because mm. peacocks were noble uh. birds. They're associated with Christ and this idea of incorruptible <laughs> flesh. Right. I know, right? Yes, it's yeah. <laughs> gosh. But 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 it's a foreign country. But it's true though, and st- what, what what you're saying seems to be very true. The peacock and the wild turkey, yes. which in this part of the world has made a remarkable comeback. Um, they, yes. Yeah, it is. Um, they wander around my house, actually, in the country. <laughs> but if you look at, in, in groups of four or five, and if you look at them, the morphology or the shape of the turkey and the peacock, the wild turkey and the peacock are remarkably the same. And when you look at the domesticated variant, it's very, very different. I mean, and uh, obviously it was bred for being being as juicy as possible and it's a total it seems like it's almost a totally different animal so so but going back to the spanish accounts and and mm. where that goes how, how 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 does that continue and and what are the, what do they do and what are the oral account the uh, written accounts tell us about the turkey and the spanish and and uh, farther afield um how how the turkey moved well, I guess I guess we'll go from south to north here. I, I mentioned yes. Ocelata, um, and that's the very that's the very beautiful, probably never domesticated turkey. Well, all turkeys are beautiful. I'm just going to say that right now, but that's my opinion. <laughs> okay. um, I do eat them as well, so uh, you're biased. Um, you realize I'm, you're I'm quite, biased. I'm quite biased. I'm, yeah. I'm super biased. Love turkeys. Right. Um, we'll anyway. Yeah, the, um, there's a scholar named Karen Davis, and she estimated that Montezuma's household went through over 350,000 turkeys on a yearly basis. Wow. Um, so that's a huge amount of turkeys being consumed, uh, you know, in what's now Mexico at Spanish contact. Um, and uh, Hernan Cortez um, demanded an estate from Montezuma, and included in that estate were... 1,500 turkeys, uh, which, you know, obviously Cortez intends to just eat them, right? Um, and the, uh, the Spanish, uh, this immense, large-scale consumption of turkeys was mainly unparalleled in the regions to the north in the American Southwest. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, the Spanish are completely baffled as to the lack of turkey eating that they encountered when they just sort of rock up at Pueblos. Um, the, one of the accounts says, we found fowls, but only a few, and yet there are some. The Indians tell me that they do not eat these in any of the seven villages, but keep huh? them merely for the sake of procuring feathers. I do not believe this because they are very good and better than those of Mexico. So what that suggests is that um, the Spanish turn up in Mexico, lots of turkeys being consumed, the turkey turnover is very high, as it were. Then they go north and they find that, that they're just, they're not eating the turkeys, really. The Spanish have obviously, you know, decided that 
they're going to go ahead and eat the turkeys at the Pueblos because they say that they're better than the Mexican turkeys. But the people who are native there are like, well, no, that's not what we use them for, but whatever. Um, it, it's, it's quite an interesting account. There are, there are other accounts um, that I don't have to hand describing the turkeys at the Pueblos being quite bedraggled in appearance and, and lacking <laughs> feathers. Uh, so, but a lot uh, of that could be ecological. Oh, absolutely. It could, it could be partly... Um, it could be partly environmental. Turkeys yeah. have, uh, they, they can, of course, get parasitic infections. And, and there are other reasons that they might not have feathers. Um, although I will say that I'm, I'm fairly convinced by the paleopathological evidence of feathers being removed from, from Ulni. Um, but, uh, it, oh, and also there's a, there's a picture. Oh, I can't remember the name of the manuscript at the moment. But in the historic period, um, people we're still plucking macaws for oh, the yeah. feathers. Oh, yeah. So it's, it, yeah, it right. could be lots of different things. But, but yes, what they do say is that the turkeys are bedraggled and they're not these, um, they're, not, they're not quite the prevalent uh, populous uh, Mexican uh, variety of turkey. You know, you, you bring up a, a real, I don't want to cut you off here, but you bring up a really interesting parallel between the turkeys and the macaws because we did an interview with a macaw expert a while ago yeah. and he said the same thing. It's yes. sort of like once the macaws got out of Mexico, all of a sudden the neighborhood was worse for them in a sense mm. and they didn't quite do as well um, mm. to the point to the point that there might be even evidence that that was understood by the advanced south uh, south uh, western indigenous populations, and they actually sent people down to Mexico to retrieve the better macaws. I don't know how much that is truth. It could have actually been closer to European Euro-American contact, or because of Euro-American contact, that the, that this happened. But it, let me just ask you one question, just to back up: is is so- would Based on what you're saying, is Mexico really the Turkey heartland? Is that? Uh... I, I think, I think the best answer to that is, it might seem slightly cheap, but I think it's a Turkey heartland. Okay. Um, I think I'm pretty convinced uh, by the argument that there were probably multiple sort of centers. Um, there, there have been, well, you know, there have been lots of sorts of arguments back and forth about. Did the domestic turkey sort of originate in Mexico and then get shipped off yes. uh, to the to vast corners of of you know these these communication networks? I'm not saying that's impossible, but I think I think it's I think there are different turkey heartlands um, throughout well, the, new, the, the new world. It, sort of, it's the same argument that you one can make for identifying independent evolution of cradles of civilization for us yes. you know i mean that's uh, absolutely it's it's, a, it's it's certainly no different i mean the parallels in 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 all parts of uh human versus the animal or in this case the avian kingdom certainly mm-hmm. draw parallels with each other but uh how good is the information and how what kind of detail do you have on um, similarities and movements, if you will, of, of, of turkeys from one area to another, or is there such a thing? Right. Um, it's early days with a lot of what we this would call part, yeah. biomolecules research. Mm-hmm. What I would love to see, I think more than anything, I would adore to see a huge synthetic project that really focused on turkey husbandry over time and something that involves a large network of researchers using a combination of DNA analysis, looking at these isotopes that can tell us more about movement, oxygen and strontium, um, as well as as carbon and nitrogen, um, because those things can really show us how these animals were moving around based on what water sources that they were using in the past and and that kind of thing. Um, Also looking at at pollen and, and of course, dung. Um, Coprolites. Yes, yes, coprolites are great. Looking at the analyses of, of the shape of the bones um, as, as well, looking at, at the metrics, but definitely looking in three dimensions um, and paleopathology, sort of the works, taking into account 
also architectural features of the sites we're talking about and the usual stuff, taphonomy and, and degradation and of bone and the like, you know, really make an effort to throw everything we can at, you know, I mean, this is the new world's most prominent and widespread domesticate. The turkey is a splendid gift uh, from the new world. And it would be great to really be able to flesh out the story of how that species moved around before, you know, the Spanish turned up. And you make a wonderful point about the fact that, as in many, many other fields related, subfields actually related to archaeology, the advent of stable isotope analysis and DNA, and I think most of the listenership is certainly more aware of the uh, significance of DNA studies to understanding human evolution, evolution generally, and how we marshal this type of data to reconstruct movements of populations and demography generally on a scale unimagined before and, and to the point that even 30 years ago we couldn't imagine that we could do this type of, this level and extent of reconstruction based on the DNA evidence. So uh, it looks like people like you are on the verge of, of a new day, really, in terms of your ability to marshal methods and interpretations, and that they may answer questions that we had once thought were impossible. What do you think for yourself, for your own research, where would you like to go with this kind of work? What, do you, what, what are the problems that you're addressing in your own research? One, one of the problems, I suppose, is, um, I suppose there's there's two halves to what I do in a way. One is looking at, you know, trying to reconstruct these past relationships through paleopathology, using that as a lens. But to do it effectively, we all need to be using the same methods or something that can be converted to something, you know, that that I understand. And it's, those protocols were just finally published in 2006. They're not quite that widespread. Um, And we're still, until we can get to the point where people don't look at a pathological bone and think, oh, well, you know, here's another interesting thing. We may or may not take a photograph of it and put it in the report. We need to get to the point where we can synthesize descriptions of of all these different things. I mean, that, that would be really, really useful. Um, the other thing is uh, the metrics, uh, having that being a standard approach when analysing faunal remains uh, would be very, very useful indeed. Um, speciation, you know, identifying the, the tax of the animals in the assemblages is really just the beginning, I think, right. of, of what we could start accomplishing. Um, and I think a lot, a lot of parallel lines of evidence i guess like we were just talking about sort of trying to cooperate with other specialists i'm i don't do stable isotopes i i understand them on a on a very sort of superficial level uh and the same goes for for dna uh but if you get you know a collection of us together working on a research question then i think you're quite right we we are on the verge of of really you know making huge strides forward in understanding past human-animal relationships. Right, and it's it's basically people like yourself who are essentially uh, drawing on the data that uh, emerge from other disciplines in an interdisciplinary way to address your own problems, looking at how thorough and uh, encompassing those other methodologies are and how applicable they are. And uh, we all do it. I mean, we all and promote uh, in archaeology the use of interdisciplinary work to expand our horizons and to answer questions that we have and other disciplines can provide. And so our job is really to uh, understand that and to look at, at, at how carefully that can be done. So I want to get back to, uh, well, we only have a few minutes left here. I just mm-hmm. want to get back to where you, where, what other types of studies that you do are similar or use the approaches that you're using for your turkey work, if you will. Oh, gosh. Uh, well, right now, um, right now I'm, I'm working on chickens, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a big um, uh, 
project uh, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are doing just one of these interdisciplinary things. Archaeological research lends itself very handily to interdisciplinarity. And uh, working, with, working with historians, other you know, archaeological specialists, anthropologists, other research around chicken husbandry more generally. And it's um, my job is, is the paleopathology. So I'm tracking the human-aided uh, transmission and movement of avian osteopetrosis across <laughs> Europe, right? Oh, so, yeah, right. Yeah, it's well, it's it's a it was a big deal in the past. There's, it know, is poor, absolutely poor Romans with their not very productive ill chickens. What are they going to do? Uh, you know, and but but and you know, I need to establish whether or not you know the disease is traveling along certain tracks kind of throughout the Roman Empire and, you know, establish when it turns up in Britain first and does it ever make it to Ireland? You know, so that's one of the things. Um, but also looking at sort of things on a smaller scale, um, looking at an Anglo-Saxon monastery called Liminge and trying to establish what the environment they were keeping their chickens in was like. Uh, right. You know, it, it seems like from the foot pathologies that are turning up, probably they were being kept in a very damp and, you know, quite unpleasant environment we we conceptualized anglo-saxons as as living in swamps uh and and perhaps their chickens did too so uh yes so it's like really a big mapping project to a large degree yes certainly i mean the the chicken i mean it's gone hugely global um it's the most common bird in the world uh Mm -hmm. and you can make a lot of jokes about the chicken it's it's quite you know it's it's quite uh you know like the turkey it's sort of easy to laugh at it but uh it's conquered the globe definitely both the turkey and the chicken and we're mapping it with dna we're trying to do the same with paleopathology and looking at uh the advent of multi-seasonal egg laying another colleague is uh working on eggshell um and uh, you know also looking at um similarly to the idea of of uh turkeys moving around looking at isotopes um, to look at diet and things like that as well. And on that note, we're going to have to wind the program down. I want to thank my very special guest, Dr. Tier Fothergill of uh, the School of Archaeology and Ancient History at the University of Leicester. And I would just caution you the next time you bite into that chicken or that turkey, be aware of how many people are working on trying to figure, trying to figure out how they got where they did. Thank you very much, and uh, we will see you next time. Thank, thank you, Dr. Fothergill, very much as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a very happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. With a new perspective in mind. Good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 